0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: My Family Recipe is a new podcast from Food52 and Heritage Radio Network, bringing you cherished heirloom recipes and the stories behind them. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Hello, and welcome to Snacky Tunes. I am one after your host, Darren Breston. It's I hope everyone is taking a little bit of time to check in on themselves, check in with loved ones, friends, families, pets. We're just taking a little time to self-reflect as the holidays come closer. There's a little chill in the air, even out here in Los Angeles, which means sweater weather, which means we are super, super, super excited. Before we start on today's new episode, we'd like to dedicate it to Ann Saxelby and her family. It was... Such a surprising loss, our hearts are still heavy, and she will be missed. She was truly one of a kind. So sending a lot of love and support to everyone who knew her and loved her or just bought cheese from her, she will be missed. We have an episode coming to you all new from the West Coast. We cannot be more excited to sit down with executive chef and co-owner of Barlacote Brad Allen Matthews who recently opened its doors. It's the second restaurant from Daisy and Greg Ryan, two of our favorite people. And we talked to Brad about seafood. We talked to him about his early cooking days on the East Coast and ultimately the music that he plays in their new dining room. And then we chat with PB of Opus Orange out in Santa Monica. He talks to us about his new album, Object Lessons, about the album Miles from Nowhere, which came out coincidentally right before the pandemic, and making music his entire life. So please sit back, relax, and enjoy Snacky Tunes here on HRN.org. We talk
3: about food, we talk about music, with musical dudes, finger on the pulse, Snacky Tunes.
2: Welcome to Snacky Tunes. Thank you so much for taking out the time of the restaurant. I know you guys just opened. Uh, So we appreciate you sitting down with us. Um, And congratulations. What does it feel like to finally have the doors open to the public at Bar La Cote? Uh,
4: Yeah, thank you so much. Uh, It feels a little surreal. I think there was so much leading into the restaurant for uh, the team and for me. Uh, You know, COVID itself was a whole... Um, it was just like decimating to the industry and to my friends and to people who were really important to me. And then, so to have this sort of light at the end of the tunnel, and then um, you know to see it keep getting pushed, whether it was due to more restrictions or you know all the all the challenges that we faced going into this opening, um, now to finally have the doors open and to see people walk through and. Uh, smile and eat the food and like the food and like the vibe. It just feels so, so good. Um, my sous chef actually last night, like walked out in the middle of the street, uh, like eight o'clock and just turned and looked into the room. Uh, mm-hmm. and said, oh, I've never looked at it at night when it's full and people are just stoked and, the, you know, the clash are playing and the lights are low and it just um, it feels wonderful, man. I feel really lucky and, and happy um, to be where we are right now. Yeah, I'm about to cut this interview short and hop in the car right now so I can do to this to,
2: to, to drink it all in tonight. Yeah, let's um,
4: do
2: it. Yeah, let's do it. I mean, uh, I want to go back a little bit because I, I, I see some parallels between the food you're cooking now and some of your younger childhood um, food experiences. You grew up on the East Coast, uh, Watkins Glen, New York, which is near the Seneca Lake if people mm-hmm. are trying to – sort of find that mental map in their mind. And you did a lot of foraging in the woods, fishing at the lake. Um, Who's taking you out and uh, what, what inspiration or what impression did those early trips out into nature to get food leave on you?
4: Yeah. So my, my mainly it was like my dad and uh, my grandmother, Um, my father was like just an avid sort of sportsman um he was into hunting and fishing uh and like archery you know and so we would go out and you know kind of throughout the whole year you're kind of like constantly watching this property and where you're watching the trails where the where the deer are kind of walking through and you're kind of planning the hunt essentially. Um, but then we would also go like rabbit hunting and we would, um, do things like that. And then fishing was just like my uncle and my dad, um, spent a lot of time in the lake in a bass boat and just, Mm -hmm. you know, I I think it was a way for them to spend time together. And then I would just kind of tag along and, um, it was just really exciting for me, you know, to like watch this whole process, Um, and understand that, like, there's a lot of work that goes into it. It's not just, like, you don't just go out there and and get a deer. You don't just go out and, like, get a fish. Like, it's sometimes it's painstaking. You're sitting there for, like, an hour, you know? Um, I think my dad used to say, like, it takes a lot of beer to catch a good fish or something along those lines. (laughs) Um, No, but – and then my grandmother – My grandmother was like a lunch lady at, uh, the school that I went to. She had this really, really beautiful garden in the backyard. And I remember being a kid, uh, one of my first like real memories was we went out to the, to the garden and, um, picked fresh asparagus and then she came in and she just like sauteed it in butter and then, uh, fried an egg and just like, it was asparagus and an egg.
2: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, Oh mm -hmm. my
4: God, this is insane. It's insane. Um, and then I was also, you know, like my father was a butcher. My mother was a nurse. We didn't have a ton of money in our family. Sure. And, I, and I think that there was uh, an opportunity f- for me to um, provide for myself a little bit. You know, this was like in the late 90s. And so if I wanted to have like a, a track phone, I had to go and work at the local restaurant and bus tables and do prep so I could go and, ha- you know, get a cell phone or go and – um save up some money to buy a car. So there was just this, there was a, a necessity, but there was also like an interest in the world. Um, and then once I, you know, ultimately I think too, there's something to me that's so romantic about, um, a dinner service, you know, sure the, the whole, the whole pattern of the day. Um, You kind of come in, you prep in the morning, you put on good music, and you're kind of getting your mind right, and you're getting in tune with the ingredients, getting in tune with the team, and and kind of what the day is going to look like. Um, And then ultimately, still every day, to me, we we open the doors here at four o'clock. You have family meal, you have pre-shift, and then there's always this like three fifty-five sort of moment where you just like take. At least I take a couple deep breaths and try to like center myself and and. picture how um, the service is going to go. And it's, I still get nervous about it, but I think that that's why it's, it's beautiful. And that's why it is a little romantic because it's like, it's a, it's a performance. It's a show.
2: I mean, it is a show. It's a show every night that has to go on, but it also depends on who some of the characters that you work with totally. uh, being the right type of people for you to work with. Um, and it seems like you've always been drawn to these smaller family, run restaurants that had seasonal cooking. Mm. How did you lean into that even at such an early age and especially in the nineties when that was what we just said and what we're talking about were not the buzzwords commonplace that you think of today?
4: Yeah, totally. Um, I think, you know, growing up in Watkins and then, um, you know, I went to uh, after I, after graduated high school, I moved to Ithaca and spent a lot of time in Ithaca and there was a restaurant there called just a taste Um, my friend, one of my best friends in high school, his brother-in-law was the sous chef there. Um, his sister was like the front of the house manager. He worked there. Um, and he was like, yeah, come over here and get a job. And Ithaca is like a whole scene. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, there's like a ton of music and it's just, it was just like a a natural sort of progression out of Watkins. Watkins is a very small town. Ithaca naturally felt more like a city. Um, And this restaurant was ran by a great chef and her husband um, and she had spent some time at Chez Nice, and then she kind of mm. came back and brought that mentality into this little tapas bar and um, and it was just great, and it was just it was necessary, you know. We wanted to have a menu that was always changing. Um, the Ithaca Farmers Market is great, um, and then also we were just lucky enough that the farmers would kind of stop by and drop off orders. Um, and she gave us a lot of freedom, you know. I remember being like seventeen or eighteen years old and being able to like write dishes for my station which wow. now I yeah which now I think about it and I'm like what, what was she doing <laughs> she must have
2: seen something in you
4: yeah with the guys doing yeah totally and with the guidance of it all you know the sous chef would sure. be like okay here's yeah you're in a good direction but like you know Let, let's let's take these 15 yeah. ingredients and maybe take it down to a tight 7 yeah yeah why totally. don't we do that yeah totally yeah. totally um but no and and that was always really cool and um it was it was a tight ship. There were there weren't a lot of people that worked there, and so in the summer there were twelve tables inside and twelve tables outside. Mm-hmm. And so in the summer, I was a line cook. They called it the third man, um, which I always thought was really funny because I'm a, definitely a Jack White fan, and I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah. cool, <laughs> that's cool, um, and. In the winter, um, it would just be the inside tables. And so I would be, I would kind of, my role would change from like some nights I would be covering a line station, um, for one of the, like the sous chef or one of the other cooks who was off that night. Some nights I would be like bartending or hosting. It was just like, you just did all the jobs because the restaurant needed you to, to be able to be that flexible, um. And then it's cool because as my career kind of changed, um, that wasn't the first time that I had had like a floor night or a kitchen night. You know, I like to to do them both. I just think that it's it's better to have a full picture of what's happening and to understand the whole process of the restaurant, you know?
2: Mm, yeah, no, I mean, getting in and knowing how all the aspects run, how it all works together as mm. one cohesive machine really helps when, especially down the, ra- the line, you start getting into your own restaurants or, or, or running restaurants for other people. Um, I know that uh, you had a good run in the East Coast, mm-hmm. but then the uh, the siren call of the West Coast uh, came came a-hollering in the late aughts. Um, yeah. You know, in 2009, LA was not the powerhouse it is now. Um, what brought you out here? Was it that idea of like the Chez Pigny fresh produce all year round
4: seafood vibe or were you just like, I got to get out of these winters? Yeah, it was funny. I was, it was kind of both. It was kind of both. Um, (laughs) I had a friend, uh, one of my childhood friends had moved to San Francisco Mm -hmm. um, and I had never been to California before and I came up to visit and I remember he had Like he had this little shoebox of an apartment with his girlfriend. And I remember like landing, taking the bar to his place, and like sitting up in his in his kitchen kind of overlooking the bay and eating like a Pluot and just being Mm -hmm. like, What the hell is this place? (laughs) Like this is magical. Um, and then, yeah, that we took like maybe a two week, a two week trip or something. And we had gone up to Napa, uh, and then kind of cruised all the way down to Carmel, Big Sur. We didn't go as fou- as south as Los Angeles, but there was a feeling, there was like just this feeling of California that I, I just mm. immediately fell in love with. Um, it was the coastline. I just, I remember thinking just how dramatic it was and, um, how lovely it was and the food was just everywhere we went you know, we'd go to the ferry building in San Francisco. We would go, we went up to Glen Ellen star. um, And it was just like, all the food was just hitting everywhere. And it was, Mm -hmm. it was, it was a revolution, you know? Um, And so at the time, yeah, my thought was I, I I initially had wanted to go to either, I wanted to be in a major market where I could, where I could kind of play that, that game. Um, New York city was definitely a draw Um, I had some friends in there and growing up in in upstate you spend a lot of time in New York City Yeah, Um, and yeah there was naturally kind of a pull there but then once I came to California I was like I if I'm gonna do it if I'm gonna commit to something and I'm gonna make like a a really a life change and this is the only time to do it Um, because I felt like I was young enough and I I'd saved up some money and I didn't have a whole lot of attachments. And so, um, yeah, I just did it and landed in Santa Monica on sixth and Broadway. And, Mm -hmm. uh, I remember just printing out like 20 resumes a day and walking up and down the streets of Santa Monica and just like not coming home until I had handed them all out. Um, and I'd went to bar Pincho and I was initially Mm -hmm. super attracted to it because it was small. The menu was similar to what I had been cooking in Ithaca. Right. Right. Um, and then I, like a couple of days later, got a call from the chef, um, which is also a very funny story because the, that chef and I are still in touch, and one of my uh, my oyster shucker who works with us at Barla Coat, he actually worked for that old chef of mine. And he cool. was like, he had referred him to me. It's like, Hey, I got this kid that you, you just have to have on your team. He's wonderful. Um, but yeah, he was like, Hey, I want you to come in for an interview. Uh, one of our servers here actually knows your restaurant that you worked at in Ithaca. And she was like, you ha- I have to meet this person because this wow. is such a, this is such a tiny little restaurant in the middle <laughs> of nowhere. Yeah. Yeah. exactly. It's, and so that was it. Um, yeah, and uh, the rest is kind of history, I guess.
2: <laughs> and isn't this the time you met Greg and Daisy Ryan, owner of Bells, Cohen yeah, the Barla Coat, uh, friends of
4: friends of the podcast, huge fans of them. But yeah, this, is, this uh, is when you I, met them, or probably, you met them a little bit after. I met them a little bit after. I met them probably three or four years after after this pincho sort of Got it. Um, experience. Probably about three years after that, I think, is when I met them
2: did you know from that very first meeting that you would wind up opening a restaurant with them years later or did you just were like, Oh, we just hit it off.
4: Yeah, we definitely hit it off. Daisy. Daisy is just such an incredible human being. Um, Mm -hmm. And I remember we would just be sitting in manager meetings and we would be like kind of looking at each other and giggling at each other or like um, understanding that like, there definitely was a connection, and at this point, Greg was wearing a suit every day of his life, and so I was actually sure. very intimidated whenever Greg would come to the restaurant. I was like, "Oh, he looks great oh, in a suit. He looks great I, in a suit." Yeah. I totally get it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And so you, I didn't really, I didn't really um, spend a lot of time with Greg because he was super busy, and then they were. It was just kind of a flash in the pan because then he, they had moved to Texas. Um, mm-hmm. But we had always stayed in touch, you know. I think that the one thing about Greg is that he has such a wonderful sense of humor and like, mm-hmm. he's so, he's so clever. Um, and it's really easy to, to connect with him, um, and to be able to laugh and to, to keep things playful, but also serious, you know? Um, and then, yeah, just throughout the, the, the path that we were on independently, like we, they would be randomly in, in LA or, um, whatever. We just kind of stayed in touch. Um, and I was just really impressed by what they were doing once they had kind of come back to California and they had taken over Bells and, and, um, mm-hmm. and just kind of watched that whole journey, which was just incredible and is incredible. It's, it, that restaurant is remarkable and um, I'm very proud of them.
2: Yeah. Well, listen, we're going to take a quick musical break. Yeah, let's do it. And then when we come back, we're going to actually talk about the early conversations into the reality of Bar and getting that open. Um, We have a song from the archives here on Snacky Tunes on hrn.org.
3: Something. Then you can chew on shit, cause they're gonna get you not.
2: Welcome back to Snacky Tunes. We are chatting with executive chef, co-owner, Barla Brad Allen Matthews. Fantastic alliteration on that name. Bam. Bam. <laughs> um, oh, yeah. Literally, bam. There literally. you go. You, literally. Uh, so, uh, before we went to the musical break, we were talking about how you had met Daisy and Greg, who are also the co-owners in Barlacote run Companion Hospitality. Um, and they have done an amazing job getting bells off the ground, putting it on the map, you know, that first restaurant's always so tough, so special and things like that. But sometimes I think the bigger challenge is getting the second restaurant off the ground because you have an established brand, you're living and breathing by the first restaurant, and then you're like, okay, is the first restaurant established enough? Who do we partner with? What is the concept? Is it like bells T O O and it's just in a different location or do we do something that's new, but still there's a through line to the original, Mm -hmm. uh, location. So how did those conversations start? When did you guys start thinking that you might be able to want to work together and how did you take some of the foundation of bells, but turn it into its own thing with Barla Co.
4: Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that that's always the really difficult thing is you don't want to just be a, a second version of it. Uh, so it was, Greg slid into my DMs. Uh, mm-hmm. There was mm-hmm. uh, one of my, my executive soon here at Barlacote Now, um, Luis Gomez was at Bell's and had posted a picture of beef tartare, or a bathroom mm. selfie with the wallpaper or something. And, Love it. And so there was this whole trail of like, Oh, how do you know this person? And so then Greg had uh, reached out to me um, and was like, Hey, Uh, so we have this project up here. Would you know anybody that would be like interested in potentially moving up here and opening a seafood concept? And I literally just sent the hand, the emoji of like the guy with his hand up. Sure. Classic. like, yeah.
2: Has that replaced the 20 resumes?
3: Just (laughs) the
4: raised hand emoji? Yeah, that was it. That was it. Um, and so, yeah, I think Greg and I jumped on a phone call maybe that afternoon, um, and Mm -hmm. kind of, um had kind of planned out uh, a little bit of a schedule where I could come up for a visit, um, to see the space, uh, to, you know, just kind of, uh, reconnect, come to Bell's cause I hadn't, I hadn't eaten and had a meal at Bell's yet. So I really wanted to go and see what they were doing there. Um, and just, yeah, just reconnect, you know, and just, and just make sure that there was still chemistry between the three of us and that the, 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 there was still alignment between us all. Um, and for me, at least I was just so stoked. Like I I was yeah. so excited. This area, the Central Coast, just reminds me of of um growing up in the Finger Lakes, you know, like the long windy roads and the vineyards, um, winemakers and the restaurants and the dive bars. Like it just it just felt so calming and peaceful to me. Um and then yeah, I think Barlacote – um we had a vision for it uh, and we had sort of an idea of what it was going to be and I think the more the more time we had because of COVID um, and you know this we wanted to be open like a year ago and the more time we had um, the more we thought about it the more that we we worked together Um, I spent a good amount of time at Bell's before just kind of working the fish Mm -hmm. station there um, and practicing dishes and understanding the sensibilities behind the food at Bell's. Um, and then also understanding how to do similar soulful food, but have it have its own identity. So that doesn't just feel like Bell's 2.0. And I also think that we have the Spanish and Portuguese sort of influence in our menu where Bell's Mm -hmm. has a French influence. So I think that that's like a major definitive difference. Um, and I think that that also really truly helps. It helps me kind of cook within, a, not necessarily a box, but within these parameters of like, okay, this is what the concept is. And so this is how we have to do it. It's like, okay, if I'm going to write a rock album, then I want to write a rock album. If I want to write like a, a, you know, whatever, it's just like having this picture of what you want it to be. Um, it kind of makes, it easier to cook within the confines of the concept, you know? Um, And then we did the tour this summer. Um, We did that. Talk
2: about the tour because I thought that was really innovative. So for people who, who don't know to get ready to announce the restaurant, you did a tour. Yeah. And I thought it was interesting because, you know, for people who may not be familiar with the, with the West coast, like where you guys are situated, it's like two and a half, three hours ish. Uh, depending on the traffic north of la Mm -hmm. but la is definitely at least maybe on weekends a major market that you're playing to to get customers to come up
4: totally totally
2: so how did the tour come about what was the tour and um what was the importance of doing it
4: yeah so um i think that it, it spawned out of like uh um, Rustic Canyon, Andy DeBravo reached out and was like, hey, I would love to do something with you guys. He's a big fan. And yeah, he's the greatest. He was like, I really, I love what you guys are doing up there. Um, we, and a lot of the chefs that we worked with are selfishly, it was just a way for me to hang out with my friends that I hadn't seen in like a year because of COVID. <laughs> like we just wanted to get together yeah. and hang out and cook. Um, but yeah, so... Andy was the first person to raise his hand and to be like, Hey, let's, let's do something. Um, and then Jonathan Whitner from all day baby had, him. we, yeah. J- yeah. yeah. Is the man. Yeah. 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 They're the good. They're the greatest. Um, Jonathan is like my worst best friend. <laughs>
2: <laughs> good to have um, one of those.
4: Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Um, and, and then it was just like, um, Justin, and Anna Jack had put his hand up. I had helped mm-hmm. the boys at little coyote open, um, uh, I also love,
2: love both those guys. All yeah, those guys.
4: Jack and it's three. It's like the heavy hitters.
2: I think that was so impressive. Yeah. Every time we announced them, I was like, awesome, awesome, yep, yeah. love them, love what they're about. Because it's a little, they're all spread out too in LA, and so like there isn't like this, you know, there isn't the same thing in New York where it's like, oh, we're in this little area of like Williamsburg, or we're down the Lower East Side, or right. it's like it's a little bit more spread out here. So for you to curate these, to be like, this is where we're going on to tour, I thought that was really fun and impressive.
4: Yeah, it was super fun. It was just, it really was just, it was it was great too because none of the concepts were exactly what we were going to do. So mm. it wasn't like we were, you know, and, and we, we did some of the dishes that we do here at sure. Barlow Coat now, but it was a way for us to tweak them. Um, it was really fun for me to be able to like have my sous chefs come down and work with me and for us to work on our dynamic together and to go into a new restaurant it was like every week and and have to work the service and have to figure it out um for either one night or two nights um and ultimately i think it really equipped us with um a better understanding of each other, a better understanding mm. of the food that we wanted to do in our, in our dynamic as a team. And then when we got to come here and open the restaurant and play home games, it was like, Oh, well, this mm. is, the, this is our house. <laughs> like we, we know where all this, we know where the the sheet pans are and where you know the, <laughs> the lemons are because we, we put them there. So um, I think that that was really cool. And um, yeah. And it was, it was, it was really fun for us because it, it truly felt like, it truly felt like we were on a tour and it could just be like me always wanting to be in a band and, and to go on a tour. But um, mm. it was just, it was a lot of fun and um, the support and the repeat offenders to each, each gig that we <laughs> did was just like, it's like, guys, come on. Don't you have anything better to do?
2: <laughs> I mean, I saw some people hit all of them. Yeah, I saw totally. some people hit all of them, and I was like, good on you guys.
4: Yeah, totally. So it was a lot of fun, and I think that it was a really interesting way to get the word out about the restaurant um, and to, to practice um, and to spend some time with some people that really mean a ton to us um, and that mm-hmm. we feel super um, grateful to have them in our lives, you know?
2: Yeah, I mean – Speaking of that home field advantage, one of the great things about opening up a new spot is getting to design it and craft the mood and make the playlist. What can people expect when they, oh man, let's see, it's the fall, winter now. So let's say it's 738, it's dark, a little chill in the air. Mm -hmm. They walk in, everything's humming. What am I seeing? What am I hearing? What am I feeling?
4: Um, I think you're going to immediately have a, a great sense of warmth. Grace Gates, our general manager is unbelievable. Um, Shout out. She, yeah. Grace Gates. She, she just is such a player and such a, uh, such a like spirit animal for the restaurant. Um, so she will, will undoubtedly be on the floor somewhere, just like doing what she does. Um, yeah, and it's I think it's always a great time to have raw bar and, and oysters and things like that. So uh, we're really lucky. You sit down and chances are it'll be like the cramps or the clash or um something like that playing. Um when we when I mean we have a, a lightning bolt painted on gold flake painted on the door when you come in. So it was like Greg and I were thinking about the playlist and we wanted it to be something that was that was like very lively, you know, not just a playlist that you would kind of have if you were in, you know, a restaurant, Silver like whatever, like there's, there's a certain tone to like a common feel of a playlist of a restaurant where we were like, no, let's, let's like amp it up a little bit. Like let's, let's put on the cramps, let's put on the flash, let's like, like bring the energy. Um, and I think that the room, um, I think that the room also brings a lot of energy. The team brings a lot of energy. So it's like, it feels electric in here and the it's an open mm-hmm. kitchen. And it's a very busy kitchen. And so there's just energy that it's just kind of pumping out of the kitchen um, onto the floor. And I think the guests feel it too. You know, there'll be like a, a cure song will come on and there'll be like an uh, older couple sitting there and they'll be like singing along to it. And it's like, you're like seven years old and you're singing the cure in the restaurant right now. This is fantastic. Like the energy fantastic. is just, yeah, the energy is just great. Um, yeah. And the, the food, I'm so excited and proud of the food, everything from our, um, we have a vegetarian paella dish, which is just a killer. A chorizo clams dish. We have whole roasted fish. Um, and, you know, I wanted to write a menu that felt um, – that will change seasonally. But, like, it, it kind of felt like a greatest hits of, of what my path has been, like, so far. So there's, there's things that feel like a fishing with dynamite dish. There's things that feel like they were mm-hmm. – um, at uh, Bar Pincho, you know, we have a, a leg of a barical ham here, which is like a kind of a definitely a nod to back in those days and paella and gambas al these things that just meant so much to me and that just fit in this in these walls so well um, and also it's just a call to like the history of, of where I've been and to great chefs, you know, like I think that there's a a really beautiful story along anybody's career and like what makes a restaurant. And, um, I just wanted to do that to the best of my ability with the menu.
2: I love that. And I love that you're opening, um, in an area that is both rooted in history, but also moving forward. Mm -hmm. And you guys have also started to ingratiate yourselves into the community. You're not just opening without a sense of place. Like you're using local produce, you're losing your local seafood, um, but you guys are also doing uh, charity work, the Feed the Valley mm-hmm. campaign, and, and giving back mm-hmm. to the community. Um, you know, why is that important? To look, you have enough on your plate, opening up a new restaurant. Why go that extra mile to say, like, no, we're also going to give back to the community when our doors are open?
4: Yeah, I think that it's just an understanding of like what, the understanding of the area, and knowing that like if you didn't have. Um, farmers and if they didn't have their whole team of people that might be food insecure or something you know their Mm -hmm. children might because of covid they're not getting like the um uh like their meals at school or whatever Mm -hmm. understanding that we're in a situation to where um we can we can help that and that ultimately it's it makes everybody's life better um it might be a little more difficult one day of the week, two days of the week, but like who cares? It's, it's worth it yeah. in the long run. Um, it's worth it in the long run. And also um, it just feels like the right thing to do, especially, especially after COVID and, and what it felt like to be in this industry and to just watch it crumble, watch the, mm-hmm. your friends and your brothers and your sisters, like just, just, Take hits and, and not come back from them and not come back, yeah. you know. So it just it just feels like ultimately like the right move to, to give back as much as you can. Um, and just try to I, I really think it's just trying to make people's lives better.
2: <laughs> yeah. No, I mean it's 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 inspiring and it shows that as new restaurants open there is a new path forward that is helping beyond just maybe the bottom line and ingratiating yourself into Mm -hmm. the larger sense of space and and community of where you open.
4: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's important.
2: It's really important. Um, Well, I want to thank you for taking the time to sit down with us. Uh, But before we go, this rarely happens because we do the show in such a segmented way, but you actually know pb of opus orange who is sitting down with us after you for a live performance and i gotta ask where did your where did your path cross was it uh in the kitchen was it uh, on stage um how do you know pb
4: uh, so he – people used to come into Bar Pincho with uh, some friends, and they would sit at the bar. Um, Jeff Christensen is a good friend of his, mm. and his uh, his partner at the time, Shanti, was actually the gal that knew the restaurant that I worked in in Ithaca. Um, Whoa. So it was That's like – That's the connection? That's the connection was this thing. And then I remember we were on a rooftop in Venice, and we were like a rooftop – like 4th of July party in Venice and PB was wearing like a cure shirt or something. And it was just like, Oh, what's up. And then, it, and this was, this was like my first year living in Los Angeles. And uh, Paul has just been such a good friend and a brother. Um, and then we lived next to each other in Santa Monica for a while and, um, his uh, his partner Kit had made us some stemware or had made us some some ceramics for um, the restaurant that Daisy and I opened together um, Paul has just been also always so supportive of like me playing guitar and like my sort of musical um, side of my life and has always been like yeah come over to the studio and like I'll just help you kind of smash out some, some songs or so like whatever, you know, and it's just, he's just been an, a brother and a friend and um, an inspiration and support uh, all of it. He's just a great guy. And he, and he's unbelievably talented.
2: <laughs> yes. He's, he's very talented. And we're super excited to hear what uh, he and the band play today. It's uh it's going to be one for the books. And I'm so happy we got to pair you guys together.
4: Yeah, it's great. Uh, Thank you. What
2: What a wow! What a bunch of coincidence! It all lines up like that. Food and music. Who knew?
4: Hey, it doesn't suck. (laughs) It doesn't suck.
2: Uh, Well, listen, if people want to check you guys out, follow you online, um, swing in. Where can they go? What's the best way to get a reservation? Uh, you
4: know, yeah, Barlacote.com. You can check out our Instagram, Barlacote. We can book on talk on both the websites uh, and on Instagram. Uh, we will get a phone at some point and then you can do you can call in for reservations.
2: Don't don't make promises. I don't you, I don't yeah, think I don't, there's a phone up yet. There isn't. That's been, there isn't. It's, it's, that's been
4: up for a few years. Yeah, We have a line. We just don't actually have a physical phone. So we'll see what happens with okay. that. But right so, now, yeah, just go on and talk <laughs> on the website or on Instagram. Um, and that's the best way to do it. We have a little bit of walk-in space. But if you're making a trip, I would suggest making a reservation. Always. Yeah. I, I think in this
2: day and age, make the reservation and keep the reservation. And if you can't. Let them know forty eight hours in advance. Yeah, that's sort of just totally. for, that's for everyone.
4: Yeah, it's especially for especially
2: for you guys because we're talking right now, but that's that's a general like, yeah. hey, here's how the industry sort of working these days. Right. Uh well listen, Brad, I can't thank you enough. Congratulations. We'll be up soon enough. I mean, if what's the traffic on the 10 right now? Maybe I'll get in the car. Yeah. See, see you for dinner. <laughs>
4: <laughs> All right. Thanks a lot. I really appreciate it.
2: Yeah, man, congratulations and thanks again. We have a music uh, track from the archives and then Opus Orange live here on Snacky Tunes on hrn.org.
5: in the sky for once in my life. Heaven can wait but not tonight. Even the window of things that I lack. Wherever I go I go it's now. Some say dreaming is a waste of time. I've got nothing And the lights you took with you, they left me tonight Surfing down colours and rivers of blood And the sun making shapes, making shapes in my head Some say dreaming is a waste of time I can't get you out of my mind
1: Food is worth a thousand words. This is Arthi Menon, and I'm delighted to share a new podcast with you. My Family Recipe, from Food52 and Heritage Radio Network. Adapted from Food52's much-loved column of the same name, the My Family Recipe podcast will bring its pages to life. Each episode of My Family Recipe brings you a cherished heirloom recipe and the story behind it, from voices across the world of food. We'd open these tubs of dough and they would exhaust these incredible yeasty fumes and it just smelled like nothing else. It was so intoxicating. I'll interview writers and chefs, parents and children about what's passed down along with the foods that we know and love.
6: Chinese people aren't like born with a download on how to like velvet chicken, you know,
2: like that's not something that just like comes to you.
1: Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts.
2: P.B., welcome to Snacky Tunes. Thank you so much for sitting down with us. Thanks, Darren. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Um, So you're joining us to talk about your project, Opus Orange. And uh, I was reading up on some of your music releases. And, you know, it was interesting because a lot of people in the last year and a half released albums about loneliness and isolation. But you had an album come out right before the pandemic, Miles from Nowhere. Which was, nowhere, yeah. which was coincidentally, like, I mean, I don't know if we're ranking coincidences in the world, but was about the topics of loneliness and isolation, um, which I think a lot of people had as a soundtrack going into uh, the pandemic. You know, how did people connect with that? Like, how did it feel to to have people being able to gravitate to art about dealing with a situation that none of us had any idea that we were going into?
6: Yeah, that was I mean that was uncanny and and, and you know not of, of course how can you plan for anything these days but that sure. was definitely not planned. Uh but it was really about yeah miles from nowhere was about like totally isolating uh yourself and and then it came out and it was like and then and then that came out like early 2020 and then the lockdown happened in March and it was like we were pushing this album <laughs> and it, it, uh, it, it was strange, but it was, you know, if something, if, if it's resonant, it's resonant. And that's kind of what my goal is as an artist is to have, make resonant uh, music uh, that can, that can be heard and that can, you know, connect with someone somewhere given their circumstances. And that was, that had a, that struck a resonance.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think all of us have dealt with loneliness and isolation in one way or another in the last year but you know opus orange is this collective of artists and musicians that you're at the center of what is the dichotomy then of putting out an album of of loneliness and isolation yet being at the center of this very creative community um it's i mean being
6: around great people is what i try to surround myself with when i make any sort of music and i i just i am extremely blessed to be to have so many talented friends mm. around in this town, in this Los Angeles area that I, that make great art. And we all, when we all get together, they elevate what I, whatever, you know, songs I'm writing. And that's a, a true pleasure. Um, the, a lot of make making music is also, it does involve isolation as most, mm. almost every musician will sort of attest to because we all sit in our, Sort of caves and create, and we we do have alone time. It's not all just collab. It, it's it's also alone. It's some sort of balance of these of isolation and collaboration, uh, or at least it is for me. But I think I think that is not uncommon that um, musicians can, especially in, in the creative process, some degree of it
2: involves isolation. Mm. Yeah, I mean, sometimes you just got to take ideas in let them ruminate, be like, is this actually good? Sure. Before I take it out to the people that you trust to be like, Hey, I'm about to ask you for your creative services, your time. Cause here's an, here's the one idea that's risen to the top of all the other million ideas that I had.
6: Right. Yeah. I, that's, you know, that's vulnerable, but having people you trust as, I mean, it's Mm. just like anything with close, close friends around you. It's, it does come down to trust and it, you know, being able to, to hear criticism. Well, is very important, um, Mm -hmm. you know, in any trusting relationship, (laughs) um, but that is a part of it too. Um, for sure.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, you're for anyone who knows your work, it's very prolific. You have a, a lot of music and we're gonna get into some of the different, um, projects you've done, but going back to the themes, um, you know, you've dealt with so many different themes over your your writing career. How do they come to you? Is it driven by like what's going on in your life? Is it what you see in the world? Is it, you know, your interaction with nature? Um, You know, when do you sit down and be like, I'm going to make a new album, I'm going to write a new song? What dictates like what you're going to land on? How do you get to that point?
6: I try to remain uh, free and fluid and I'm I'm rarely going into something sort of dictating a direction. Mm. I like to be influenced by the world, uh, life, relationships, the nature. All of these things can have an influence, and I like. I prefer to allow those things to work through me rather than me trying to force a theme or force. So I I it's it's almost improvisatory the way that. I find these sort of themes. I, It's almost through the process that the themes come to life. Uh, it's almost like carving out, uh, you know, a, a, if there's a, a blank rock and then somewhere under there is a song and I have to carve away at it until I see, Oh, that's, that's what I've been doing, <laughs> I, but not intending. Uh, I don't, I don't try to intend <laughs> t- too much. Um, I try to be fluid and, and let, let things happen and, and not in a lackadaisical way or not in a hard, not in a not hardworking way, but in a way that allows energy
2: to keep moving. Mm, mm. No, I, I, I love being open to what the world and the universe is putting out there and then filtering that through creative process. Yeah. It's a process for sure. I'm processing all that stuff. (laughs) Yeah. 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 It's always a process. It's like, okay, here we go. Let's refine. Yeah. Let's listen. Um, let's listen to a song. The first song you're going to play for us is Got It All Wrong. What's the story behind this track? Yeah.
6: Um, my drummer, James, and good friend for 30 years, um, we've been, uh, during the beginning of the lockdown, we just spent, he was part of my bubble. And we were mm. just in, we were in the studio, just the two of us. I did no engineers, no other players. And we just needed to explore. You know, bang on, bang on drums and and play guitars and stuff um, loudly, which was seemed necessary at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this this is the first song on the record, Object Lessons, and the the record was actually made in the order that we made the songs. So mm. that that I that process will be you know is kind of I wanted to just kind of preserve that because I liked it. So got it all wrong is the first song that we made from the record and the first song that we made during the the recording process.
2: Amazing. Well, here we go. Appropriate that it's the first song you're going to play for us today. Got it all wrong. Opus Orange live here on Snacky Tunes on hrn.org. amazing loved it so great to uh hear the first song off the new album and the new work but i want to go back a little bit because you're one of those uh musicians who we love because you've been doing it before you even knew that you were doing it or even set in career because you started when you were eight um and you start composing not just you know, i mean i remember when i was eight and i was like dinking around on the, on the piano, and I was like, this just feels like a chore. But you were actually like writing music, you're into it, uh, you were composing, creating. What do you remember from then, if anything, that still rings true for you today?
6: Um. Yeah, starting early, I remember being well, kind of what we talked about earlier, being influenced by things that were happening. And it was, mm. it was, it was an Olympics year at <laughs> that time. And I was eight, and nice. I thought that was pretty cool. And so my, on the piano, and I just started. So I was in kind of the, I, for those that know, piano, I was in the C position, just like very basic. <laughs> put yeah. Your, oh yeah. Put your hands on the keyboard. And I wrote, uh, sort of, I co- it was called March of the champions. There we go. It, it was kind of like had an, an Olympic Marchy, um, theme that I, that was sort of, that was definitely influenced by, you know, the, mm. the Olympics that were going on in that year. And so, yeah, kind of what we were talking about. um, What I I let things kind of process through me. And I think that's been true since then.
2: There is such that great thing about starting young, where you don't edit yourself, because now you might go like, I'm not gonna write a theme about the Olympics. Like, why would I even attempt to do something like that for either internal or external reasons, whatever? But because you started writing and started opening yourself up to the creative process at such a young age, what did that allow for when it comes to influences, like genres of music or being open to things or just, you know, eight, nine, you're still just open to the world. Um, yeah. Yeah. What, what did you bring in that you would have maybe not brought in if you had started when you were like 18? Um,
6: that's a good question. You know, I had I had an older, I still do have an older brother. Great, um, and three and a half years older, and he he was super, and still is super hip. Um, and so his in his influence on me musically was is is very strong, and to this day. Uh, and he was he was always kind of on the on the outskirts of society as a skateboarder and sure. and various substances and um, and into you know punk and goth and new wave and things that things that are, you know, those like, I mean the care and Depeche mode and new order. And those are like in my blood because mm. of, because of having a cooler older brother and that, that steered me away from sort of what kids were listening to in, you know, at that age and through junior high and through high school, which is, which is pop um, sort of radio Stuff And so I've always been a little bit on the, on the, I've always had a little aversion to sort of what is top 40 um, because, and thankfully because my, my older brother. And so like, even in, even though I was in in the piano and in the academic sort of studying, uh, you know, the classics and whatnot, I was also getting that influence from my brother's music and that really kind of took hold in, and in a different way. And then at the same time, I was also, you know, in junior high, I started playing in jazz band Mm. and, and through high school. So I was influenced by, and I, I never really liked listening to jazz, but I really loved playing it. Um, and in jazz, you, you are kind of free to screw up and fail. And like, that's what improv is all about. And there's, that freedom I think is it. I mean, I'm not, I'm like, I don't, you don't hear a lot of jazz in my music, but um, the freedom to, for imperfections and failure and, and allowing things to be instead of like hammering them into shape is something that I, I really do take with me
2: and try to keep as I create. Oh, I mean, that's, that's so great. You know, there is, a little bit of that ethos through line of jazz being the punk rock of its era when the older generation said, absolutely not. What is this? And they were saying, there are no rules to music. We can reinterpret this. And now it's become, I mean, like you said, what you play its middle school standards. Uh, the irony there of, of that through line, but seeing just, I think the ethos of like jazz and punk is very similar, at least in, and it's the infancy of both of those genres. Um, yeah. You know, speaking of family, uh, I, I also read that your, your parents were extremely supportive of your creative endeavors, which does not always happen when someone picks the arts. Um, how did their support uh, guide you and help you and allow you to continue on this musical career?
6: Yeah, I mean, in high school... When I, I I even switched high schools my um, junior year because I wanted to be in a better jazz ensemble and a better music program mm. in, outside of Sacramento, um, and and you know switching public schools is a little weird because it's like where do you live and why don't I so I somehow my mom finagled it that I could switch to a high school that's forty minutes away even though there's one like. I can walk to, um, but because the music program was great and that, you know, that's, and that's one indication of my folks support for, Oh yeah, that's what you want to do. Let's, let's figure it out. Um, and those two years, junior senior year of high school were so formative for me in, in solidifying music as the trajectory in my Mm -hmm. life. And so then going into, into college and studying classical piano for four years for a bachelor music degree. Um, you know, again, most, or there are parents out there that would not support sort of a college trajectory in uh, the very unstable music uh, <laughs> world or even a career, but I didn't go for a career. I went really to study and learn the art of, of and the depth of classical music. It wasn't, I didn't want to be a teacher. I didn't want to be a classical music performer. I just wanted to learn the art the art of, of, of piano and dig it, dig in even deeper than I already had. And that's why I, I went. And I, again, very grateful to my folks for supporting that decision. Um, and I, you know, uh, with, without it, it would have been, it would have been a little bit, it would have been quite a bit tougher, you know, if, if there wasn't financial support, if there wasn't sure. emotional support, all of these tangible and intangible support things that, uh, parents, can or can't give, or don't give. Um, that it was very important, and I'm grateful.
2: That's amazing. Well, uh, we're going to hear a song, and then when we come back, I want to talk a little bit about that professional career, where you know music really has been such a big part of your overall life. But we have Breaking Mirrors coming up next. What's the story behind that song?
6: Breaking Mirrors. Uh, it's it's sort of celebrating the uh, the the fact that we might not have all the answers. Mm. Um, yeah, pe- people are always looking for answers and trying to trying to hone in on what is the answer. And this was, uh, you know, if you don't know, that's wonderful. And you can try stuff then. Then you're free to just try stuff and screw up and fail and learn. And
2: it's good to not have answers. Just like uh, playing jazz music, right? Exactly. All right. Here we go. Breaking Mirrors, Opus Orange Live here on Snacky Tunes on HRN.org. Welcome back to Snacky Tunes. That was just Breaking Mirrors live from Opus Orange. And I want to talk a little bit about the professional side of your music career, because while we've delved into uh, the more personal and creative, you've also had good success in professional composing, TV, movies, getting a lot of sync deals and things like that. Um, What is it like using music for that professional pursuit? Do you ever do you ever find lessons learned there that you bring into your personal world or how do they work you know it's a bit of a dichotomy because it's like we need this to be 37 seconds long it needs to have this sort of emotional it is very very specific versus what you've said before which is like oh i'm sort of an open conduit for like what the universe throws at me
6: Yeah I I I have sometimes made the distinction between art and craft and sure. I I feel like um so, the opus orange stuff is kind is kind of my my art and i like i don't need to sort of answer to anybody um and then when i try to be a sort of a a commissioned uh craftsman of music craftsperson mm-hmm. of music mm-hmm. um if i get hired to to do an assignment i i really view it a little bit well, quite a bit differently like i'm i'm letting I'm serving the purpose of making someone else's project elevated and, and, and making their vision come to light, not my vision come to light. So putting, putting sort of ego aside, uh, I'm there to serve someone else's, uh, vision. And that, I I mean, I love, I love doing that. I absolutely love it. Um, and not everyone's, sort of built for that especially in the creative world mm-hmm. um, where things are often hold, held pretty precious what what I create or can be held precious but when you when I get hired I am uh I again it's not my ego so like if I write a track and the, a director doesn't like it okay cool let's let's do something else yeah instead of yeah and so there has to be a, a sort of is it levity or or some sort of like
2: Perspective,
6: Again, perspective putting your ego at the door and really yeah. recognizing that you're there for someone else's uh vision which uh, which I love I mean that that collaboration truly can can elevate I mean I I've written things that I normally you know wouldn't write without that sort of uh that without that sort of collaboration and input creatively so uh, I mean those parameters even the length or what the emotion of the scene is I, mm. And figuring out how to how to make that work for the project, I I love this. I mean, it's it's problem solving um, mm-hmm. at its at its most at its best. And even though it's creative and me, and music, it's really it's really um, problem solving to make that
2: elevated. It also helps that it's not your problem. Like you're solving someone else's problem. <laughs> right. 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 Sure. Yeah, I mean. It is my
6: problem if the director really doesn't like it.
2: Sure. But it's, you know, let's talk a little bit about Object Lesson, which was the album that your recent release, and you mentioned a little bit about um, recording it during the pandemic. But when you're staring down your own problems creatively, and you're like, oh, I'm sort of stuck, and then someone comes along and like, hey, real quick, I need you to solve my problem. Focusing that attention on someone else's craft or work might – get you out of the, the, the mental block that you need on your own stuff.
6: Yeah. It's a good exercise. I think, um, to, to be able to keep moving and to be able to do revisions and to not, um, sort of stagnate or come in, come into a wall that you can't get behind. So I, even with my own stuff, I do try to, if, if it, if there's a, uh, not an impasse, but if there's a hurdle, you just, keep, you just keep throwing things, and moving things and keeping energy flowing is that, I mean, that's the most important thing in, in both aspects. And I take that sort of with me, like, I mean, with, with commission stuff, you have a deadline, you have to get it done, whether you, you feel it or not, (laughs) like there's, you know, whether you're inspired or not, you like jobs, jobs, commissioned work has, has parameters like that. Um, and bringing that sort of aspect to even, even my own, my own opus orange stuff, is, is pretty useful to keep it flowing and keep energy moving and try to
2: prevent stagnation and, uh, impasses. Yeah. Um, I mean, obviously we were, a lot of us were in some sort of physical and even mental impasse over the last year. And and that is a year and a half. And that's when you, um, started writing and finished and released object lesson. Um, what, you know, it's interesting for you to say that you you the the track order is the order in which you created and recorded the songs. Yeah. Is there a progression? Like, do you see that the the ebbs and flows of the year and a half you last had? Like, what was the decision to do it there in that um, way? The
6: decision was definitely after they were all done, and and you know when, during the creative process, I I live with these sort of all along works in progress along the way, rough mixes, all that you know. As we add as we add things to the tracks, or or as the mix gets refined, I'm always kind of digesting them during the process. Um, and I got maybe I just got used to that order, <laughs> but also also I think the order does show a, a sort of progression in myself if you if you were to sort of extrapolate that one um and it 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 it, it was just a natural a natural decision that I didn't need to really overthink or great. or not it just, it just worked and I was like oh well that's great I don't need to shuffle songs around just to shuffle songs around
2: uh what do you hope people get out of the new album obviously as we talked about miles from nowhere was sort of your isolation loneliness album. Um, But this one, you talk about getting together in a room with, you know, the drummer and being with people. And also I know that some of the influences were connecting through with people through live streams. Like ironically, it seems like a coming together type of album Uh, and the, the opposite of, of, of the album you released just before.
6: Yeah. Uh, Yeah. It, it is, it is a kind of a coming together album. And when, even though it was made in this, So it was made sort of piecemealed like sure james and i were were we set the foundation with the drums and the guitars uh at the beginning and that was that and then everything else was collaborative in terms of so i mean the bass players in sacramento send him files and like it it wasn't it wasn't live in a room ironically miles from nowhere was live in a room together (laughs) so like i mean you know that kind of stuff i just kind of allowed i allowed a see where that leads um and and see how it feels but um recording uh you know playing these songs for snacky tunes and with everyone in the room that meant a lot because it Mm. had been a long time to have five people in a room playing music together um and so it so thank you for the catalyst because it was cathartic for
2: cathartic for us and um and and a real a real pleasure Awesome. Well, I want to make sure that we have a, enough time for one last song, but before we toss to it, um, if people want to send the album, follow along, check out when you're playing live next. Uh, where can they go? How can they find you?
6: Um, we're on the socials at Opus Orange and that should kind of cover everything. Yeah. yeah.
2: Yeah. You guys are pretty consistent, pretty good about that.
6: I try. Try screaming into the void.
2: Amazing. Yeah. Well, now
6: Sometimes. it's out there. Now, well, yeah. now,
2: now you can scream in front of people. Maybe. Yeah, I'd love to. Uh with, all right, last carefully. last song it's the Oh sorry, yeah, very carefully with a mask maybe. Uh yeah. burning question is the last song that you're going to play for us, uh what's the story behind there behind that well, song?
6: This one's a little bit about self-sabotage and mm. asking ourselves why why do we why do we screw it up
2: sometimes or all the time or often or always. I don't know. Well, if you find the answer please do let me know cuz I Yeah. I'd I'd love to have that that go to uh, answer in my back pocket from time to time. Uh, yeah, listen, hence PB. the burning question. Oh, yeah. Uh, PB, yeah. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you so much to the band for playing live. Um, here we go. Burning question live on Snacky Tunes on HRN.org. We will see you next time. Thanks again.
3: Here's the burning questions about food we talk about music with musical dudes finger on the pulse snacky tunes this program is powered by simplecast
1: thanks for listening to heritage radio network food radio supported by you for our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events subscribe to our newsletter